Amen. Oh, man. Those of us who have been invited by God into the male gender need to remember how important the blessing we are to our world is. And to be fathers to the fatherless, to be present for our children, to carry the legacy of love that the Father in heaven gives to us onto another generation. Thank you if you are a dad. Thank you for the blessings you have been to Brenda and I and our family as she recently lost her father. You have been a tremendous blessing to our family. We are grateful for the church reaching out and being the church in our lives. Um, we have often seen this ministry. We have, this is the first time we've felt it. We were proud of you when you were serving others. We are amazed and blessed in your service to our family. Would you join me for a word of prayer as we get started in the word today? We're going to be in Romans chapter 8. Let's ask God's blessing on our, uh, as we open it. Father in heaven, we are fully aware that we don't measure up. We are also aware that Jesus did. We ask that you would challenge us in your word today. We ask that you would call us to yourself today. We ask that you would open our hearts and that your spirit would come in through this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Today I want to talk to you about God's end game. God's end game. I want to remind you that God has a plan. That plan has an end game. There's an, an outcome that God has already set in motion, that God has already planned, that God has already stated for you and for me. God has an end game. You know, we talk about this a lot. We talk about this. We, we say this a lot when we don't trust people, right? Well, I don't know. What's their end game? What are, what are they really wanting? What are, where are they planning on this thing getting to? You know, you walk into a car lot, you know the end game is to see you drive away with a, a, a pair of keys and a giant bill, right? That, that's the end game. You, you know that people have an end game. There's a, there's a plan in mind for you. But God's plan, God's end game is a tremendous blessing and only that. The end game for God has no subsidiary, secondary thing going on. It is simply and always has been the blessing of his children and the recovery of them to himself. God's end game. The passages that we're looking at in, in Romans chapter 8 today describe that end game. They describe what he is doing, what he has planned. They describe specifically not only how the end game works, but how the game works between now and then. The rules of the game, the process of the game, the outcomes of the game, how the game functions between here and the end. The Bible describes that moment when Jesus comes with, with spectacular credits. I mean, the, the, the things that it describes are amazing. The trumpet of God. You've heard trumpets. You've heard choruses of trumpets. If you've ever been present for like a military celebration, you've felt the depth of a trumpet. This is not just all of that. This is the trumpet of God. The trumpet of God blows at the last 
moment of this planet's history. The chorus of angels and the crowd of them coming in the sky. Descending on the planet, Christ still in the heavens above, seen by every eye on the planet at the same time. Don't ask me how. Don't ask me how. I know physics says that that gravity can bend light. So maybe just for a minute, God bends it all the way around the planet. So wherever he shows, everybody sees him. I don't know. But he's God. He gets to do what he wants. The Bible describes that when Jesus comes, those who are alive and remain on the planet will be lifted up, will be drawn up on the, from the planet, be, be drawn straight up off the ground. Those who are dead will be drawn up out of their graves, transformed in a moment into the character, into the, the, the value, into the flesh of Adam and Eve before the fall. And those who are alive in the same, the Bible says in the blink of an eye, this mortal puts on immortality. This corrupted person puts on incorruption. The transformation that God has planned is clear in Scripture. The Scripture says that when God comes, sin is done. And God's redeemed people will experience what it's like to live without that brokenness inside of us that draws us back to sin again and again. That's God's end game. That's the plan. I'm in for that plan. I am in for that plan. All, there, there are lots of details between here and that plan, but I am in for that end. And, and we can argue about the specifics. I mean, we have lots of different opinions about how it's going to happen, but the end game is clear. At the end of time, sin is done away with, righteousness is installed, and eternity is given back to mankind. Because that's what God always intended. The end game, it turns out, was the beginning game. The end game, it turns out, was the start. The finish line, turns, it turns out, was the starting line. God's end game for you and I is clear in Scripture. So the question, the only question you really should answer, the only question you really should walk away with an answer to today is, am I in for the end game? Have I chosen that to be my end? By the time you leave here today, by the time we, I finish this morning, I hope that you will be absolutely sure, if, you're, if you have any questions right now, that your end will be that which Christ intends for you. That you will live eternally at home with Dad. You will live eternally at home with the one who gave everything to get you back. Because that's God's end game. That's the only plan that has ever been the plan. We're in Romans chapter 8. We've been there for a couple of weeks. But I want to I take you to, to why we're here. Remember, we've been talking about the Apostle Paul. And we, we started looking at this guy named Saul who, who had this crazy life. He was out there attacking the people of God, attacking the church of God. And in the midst of that, God stops him and says, Hey, you are on the wrong side. You are fighting for the wrong team. You're wearing the wrong colors. You need to change gangs. You need to get on the other side of this deal. You need to join me and quit fighting against me because I am, in fact, God. The apostle was crushed by that knowledge, transformed by the opportunity that Jesus gave him to follow him, to be called into leadership and be called into carrying forth a message that he only just heard. 
And we said he spent three years learning the theology, going back into the Old Testament. He was filled with Old Testament understanding, going back into those things that he had learned since childhood, going back into the memory that he had, that he had placed in his head, all of those books he had memorized, going back, going through them, understanding them, and coming to some conclusions about who God was, and coming to some conclusions about that the, the righteous, the, the people of God, the just, they live by faith, not by sight. Coming to understand that for Father Abraham, for the father and founder of Israel, for Father Abraham, it was not his successful behaviors that God chose to bless. It was that momentary, and I am telling you, it was momentary belief. And he, because he believed, God had accounted it. God had accounted it to him as righteousness. Those of you who are accountants understand that when he accounted it to him, when he granted it to him, it wasn't already in the account. He placed it in the account. Righteousness was placed in the account because he trusted the one who held the pen. The apostle then went on to start structuring his understanding of how the theology of the world and the earth worked. And he began to say, the theology that I'm teaching you changes everything. There are no Jews or Greeks in this theology. There are no rich or poor in this theology. There are no males or females in this theology because this theology levels the field for everyone. This theology levels the playing field for every single person on the planet because all are one in Christ, all are loved by God, all are his creation, and you've never looked in the eye of an individual whom Christ did not die for. No matter where they sit, no matter whether they sit on the curb with a bag, with a bottle, or they sit in the White House behind a desk. No matter who you've seen, no matter who they are, we do not have the, uh, the right to see them as anything but God's child. And when we see them doing the wrong thing, we pray. Or we step in where we are called. tell you, when I look at this, when I sit at this place, when I understand my own reactions to people, I have a long way to go before that becomes real in my life. Before I can look into the eyes of anyone, no matter where, no matter who, and see only someone for whom Christ died. And all the other things about them melt away. Because the only important fact is that one. And Paul said in the theology of God and the understanding of who God is and who he has placed in this world and who we are in dealing with him, we stand equal with every other person. Someone who has been broken so deeply on the inside that it required the death of God himself to rescue them. And the apostle in chapter 7 is where I... I want, you to, I want you to direct your attention and your mind today. I want, I want you just to catch that closing question in chapter 7, verse 24. We started here last week, but we weren't able to finish it. The preacher went as long as I could bear to, to hold you, and I still didn't get done. I should have made this three or four sermons. But I want to take you back to, Genesis, or to Romans chapter 7, verse 24. Paul has been decrying his own problem with sin. He has, been, he has been crying out to, rec to his own recognition that he desires to do the will of God. He desires to walk 
as God's law asks and requires of him and knows that he's not able to do it. With my mind, I serve the law of God, and with my flesh, I find myself doing other things. I do, things, do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I do want to do. At the end of that, that recitation of the problem, he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? The rest of seven and all of eight is the explanation of how that body of death will be saved. The rest of this, from there at the end of seven through the entirety of eight, is a statement about the reality, the truth, that a man broken like him can and will be not only rescued, not only saved, but transformed, glorified. Not just justified, but glorified. Not just sanctified, but glorified. He is, he is bent on us understanding that this world is not our home. And there is a future that is different from the present. And that the things present, no matter how great or how bad they may seem to us, are a blip on the screen of eternity. And that God held eternity in His hand. And so as we have talked about this, I remind you that we said, hey, when you are in Christ, you are different. When you are in Christ, you are onto a different place. Repentance is that simple thing. Remember, we've, we've talked about this a lot. Repentance is simply turning around and going in the opposite direction. A person who is walking in carnally, as he describes it, a person who is walking after the flesh simply turns around and goes in a different direction. So no matter where you find yourself, if you're wandering on a path that's away from God, and it doesn't matter which way it is, there's a lot of paths away from God, but there's only one path back to Him. He says, simply get back on that path, head for home. This is that story. This is that amazing story. The story that Grace Point really hangs its hat on. This is that story of a prodigal son who left on his own volition, who went away from his father on purpose. He decided that the inheritance of his father was not worth waiting around for, that he would rather his father be dead and him get the inheritance right now than to wait. So he left home with that snit in his mind. And then he turned for home. When he finally, after he ran out of all the money, he found himself at the bottom. His father did not say, well, good for you. Good for you. Suck it up now, buddy. You earned back what you lost. He didn't do what most of us would do, right? He didn't say, served your right, serve your time. When he headed for home, the father met him out on the road. And he covered his sin. And he covered his sketch. And he slipped a ring on his finger that entitled him to the accounts of the father. You see, when he slipped the ring on his finger, he settled all the debt and he gave him back the credit he did not deserve. Credit earned by the father. It's all right there. The whole story. That when we turn when we stop, Paul's describing, when we stop pursuing carnal, fleshly attitudes and directions, we stop pursuing the things that are leading us away from God, when we stop proceeding away and we turn back to God, He meets us there. And in the moment He meets us, He covers our stench, He covers our filth, and He slides the ring on our fingers and gives us the full account as if we were already home. But he doesn't stop there. He implants the Holy Spirit in our lives as as a as a as an internal as 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 a royal as a spiritual GPS to show us the way back home. And that spiritual GPS says in your mind, "Hey, Walt, off the path, buddy. 
off the path. You remember your GPS used to tell you this, right? It used to tell you, you, you know, uh, uh, redirecting, redirecting, redirecting. It's like, you're lost, buddy. I'm going to get you back on track. That's kind of what the Holy Spirit is always doing. The Holy Spirit is teaching us to stay within the boundaries of the path. Why? Not because God is trying to hem us in, because God is trying to give us the best possible life where we find ourselves. That's what Romans 8 is teaching. As the Spirit is being described, the Holy Spirit in you, the Spirit of Christ in you, you in Christ, as it's describing all of that, those things are unfolding the path back to the Father. Those things are unfolding. How you get from wherever you found yourself back to the porch. Remember what happened when you land on the porch, right? When you get to the porch, the party starts, right? And so it's, it's, it's getting back to the porch. The whole story is how the Spirit is leading you back to the porch and back to the celebration, back to the arms of the Father, back to the glory of the, of, that you were meant to have. As we finished last week, we got to that part where he says at the end of, or at the, at, well, it's the end of a column in my Bible, that's why it's at the end. We got to that point where he says that the Holy Spirit also helps our weaknesses. That the Holy Spirit helps our weaknesses, for we do not know what we, even we should pray. And that, as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groaning. That cannot be uttered. You see, repentance is turning for home. Repentance is simply headed home, right? Repentance is making that turn. But then, once repentance gets started, God says, look, I'm in this with you. Nobody walks home by themselves. Do you remember that kid? You remember the kid, right? elementary school there was always one or two people would leave the elementary school and we'd all leave in groups i would always walk with glenn johnson sometimes we'd pick up someone else gino diga moved into our uh, into our neighborhood gino glenn and i would walk we always walked together there were always more than one of us we we would walk to that place where you would split you know you know what the place is right you'd you'd walk down the street to that place where somebody had to go to their house and you had to go to yours but you would always walk together. But there was always that kid. For, for By choice, by the direction that they were leading, or simply out of the fact that nobody actually liked them, was alone. Do you remember that kid? In the fourth grade, I was after school nearly every day because I talked too much in my teacher's requirements for people who talk too much was that they stay after school. And so I've told you before, I was after school nearly every day. I loved that teacher. We became really good friends. And now I get paid to talk. It's a beautiful thing that God has done. But as I was was waiting in class to spend my 15 or 20 minutes, my friend Glenn waited with me. When you and I wander on to a side lane and get stuck, we do not do that alone. I, w- I was listening to a preacher, and he said, you, you know that when Joseph was in the prison, the Bible says, and God was with him there. Right? You know that God would go to prison if you went to prison? He would go with you to prison? If you get sick, 
God visits hospitals. If you are stuck at home, too depressed to go outside, God makes house calls. Nobody gets onto a side street by themselves. Nobody gets to walk home alone. Everybody has the presence of the Father in the powering internal presence of the Holy Spirit if they're headed home. It doesn't matter what rail you get off on. No one walks alone. And if you need to be waited on, he'll wait. If you stop on the road, he'll wait. Because that's how much he loves. It's the only reason he waits. It's the only reason he gets on these paths. It's the only reason he began the process at the beginning. When we sinned, he could have said so much for them. But instead he said, here's how much I'll give them. By turning for home, you and I chose a different story. Think about it. We were headed for hell, literally, right? We were headed for hell, literally. This is not figuratively something that's shouted at you from the sideline. This is the truth about our life before we chose Jesus. This is what the apostle is saying. To be carnally minded is to be headed for death. When he is drawing the difference between these two lives, the one led by the spirit and the one led by the flesh, he said the spirit leads you to God, the flesh leads you to hell. The Spirit leads you to eternal life. The flesh leads you to death. He's drawing the differences between these two as a, as a dire warning for those of us who would choose the wrong path. Not only does the Spirit come into your life to guide you, He comes into your life to empower you. And when you are struggling, when you are lost, the GPS says, hey, the road's over there. Turn left. Turn left. Turn left. Have you ever driven past the first three lefts? And had, the, had that little voice. Mine, mine has a New Zealand accent because it just sounds better to me. I'm more willing to listen to her with a New Zealand accent. And if I pass the first left, she will just wait till the next block and she'll give me, you know, she gives you the warnings, right? Turn left in a half a mile. Turn left in 800 feet. Turn left. In, turn left! I w- actually wish she would shout at me because sometimes I for- miss. But the Spirit is simply saying to you, you've missed your turn, take the next one. You've missed your turn, take the next one. Oh, good, you got the right turn. You're almost back to the path. Ah, you're on the path, good. And you have that spirit of peace that comes over you when you're on that path. You remember, you, you remember what that feels like? Some of you have been on the path so long you forgot what it feels like to be off the path. Wait till tomorrow. It'll come back to you. You see... Our problem is that we don't trust the one who actually knows the way. Our problem is that we've forgotten that God has always known the way home. Right now we find ourselves in the midst of this weird global pandemic thing. And we, we, we've embodied a bunch of the fear that has come along with that. I mean, I am, I don't know about you, but I am really tired of death countdowns. I am tired of clocks telling me how many people have died. And I I realize they could put one up for cancer. They could put one up for heart disease. They could put them up for a lot of things, and we would just be sitting around brokenhearted for all the death around us. 
all COVID has done is bring is bring into focus the reality that we live in a place where death rules. But God knows the way home. And the apostle is trying to tell us that God has an answer even for the death that lives within us. For the realities that every single one of us will die if Jesus doesn't come first. It's just the truth. But we don't have to die not knowing. We don't have to die not knowing. If you have been walking in the wrong direction, you know how you get to know, right? You simply turn and head for home. You know what happens on that day? The Father shows up to meet you on the road, right? He covers your stench, right? He, 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 he wraps His robe around you that not only covers the dirt, it covers the evidence of the dirt. You no longer smell like a pig. You now smell like the Father. You're wrapped in the robe of righteousness that has not only a covering for your filth, it has a covering for your stink. And He not only does that amazing moment, and that amazing moment wraps you and covers you and hides all that you're afraid of, He writes your name in the Lamb's book of life. That's what slipping the ring on the finger is about. That's making the accounts right. You no longer owe a debt of sin to anything. He slipped the ring on your finger and wrote your name in his account book. It's in Hebrew, so you have to write it this way. He wrote your name in his account book. And what name is in the account book, it's simply recording that this person is on the way to being saved. And in this moment, it is as if they have arrived. Paul is trying to teach us that in God's reality, God who lives outside of time, catch this, don't miss this, God who lives outside of time, things God declares are true, both now and then. Because God lives outside of time. Get that. God lives outside of, God invented time. You can't invent something that you are bound by. God lives outside of time. And because God lives outside of time, when God declares you righteous, it is true both then as it is a projection forward and in reality at the time when it arrives. You are glorified here because God sees you as glorified. You are glorified when you are still covered in the stench of that pig's pen because God sees you as glorified. He is outside of time, so He's not bound by the process. He's not, you and I are, you and I are struggling through the process every day, but God is not bound by the process. God sees us as if we were perfectly clear, clean of sin and righteous on the day we come home. That's why He slips the ring on our finger, because our accounts are settled. And we are as if we were glorified. That's what Paul is trying to explain here. That's what's trying to be explained. Let me read it to you. Let me, let me read it to you in the text. The Spirit helps in our weaknesses. When we don't even know what to pray, the Spirit steps in and the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us in prayer with groanings that cannot be uttered. And Paul, because he's worried that we're going to worry that God won't understand, that says, now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is is so don't worry about the groanings god knows what groanings mean that's what he's trying to say he keeps inserting things that's why paul's so hard to read he keeps inserting things to try to clarify for us here's the clarification god knows the holy spirit's mind he's not wondering what the groanings mean 
He aligns, when the Holy Spirit speaks and intercedes for us in prayer, He aligns our prayers with the will of God. That's the next statement. He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. When I don't know what to pray, you know what the Spirit does? The Spirit starts praying for me. He starts interceding with groanings that clearly state my God's will in my own life and for my own life. When I am praying for someone else, when I am interceding for you, and I don't know what to pray, I simply bring you to God and say, God, please, please allow your will to rule in their life. Please, God, take care of them. You ever prayed, just take care of them? I've prayed it so many times, I can't even remember it. Take care of them, because I don't know what else to ask. Let your will be done in their life. I love this phrase from Jesus, as it is in heaven. So here we face this crazy world of COVID-19, and you know what I want to pray? You know what I'd like you to pray? You know what I wish the church would pray everywhere? Lord, let your will be done in this, as your will is done in heaven. We are facing this wild racial divide of the moment, which is, which is really just the pinnacle of something that is, it's like this giant, giant iceberg where most of it is still buried under the water and that peak of it is coming up and sticking out and poking its nose in our face and saying it's still here we still need to resolve this problem and the holy spirit has already spoken to you about this god does not leave his church unaware when these things come up you know and i know the convictions of our own needs come to us we sometimes fight them but they are there And the conviction of the step we need to take comes to us. You know what I wish we would all pray? In the racial issues of our world? Lord God, let your will be done in earth, on earth, in this place, in the United States, in my life, in my town, in my family, as it is in heaven. Because I don't know what else to pray. The Spirit intercedes and aligns even the groanings of my heart even the emptiness of those moments at two in the morning when we're awakened to pray and we don't know what to pray. In those moments, the Holy Spirit steps in and speaks on our behalf. So think about it. Here we are, we're on the trail, we're on the, the repentant path, right? We're headed back toward home. We get into a moment where we're stuck. We don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. We don't even know what to pray. And God says, the Holy Spirit's there. The Holy Spirit's right there. He'll take even that moment when you don't know what to do. And he will freight it to God and align it with his will. And even your prayers, even your prayers and mine, reach heaven through the voice of the Spirit, clarified and aligned with who God is. We serve an amazing God, and Paul's just trying to get us to understand. And then he starts down this road He starts down this road. And we know all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He says, you already know what the will of God is. He says, you already know. Don't pull this so far out of context. We jump on this text all the time. But don't pull it out of the context. Paul is saying, when the Spirit speaks from your heart to God's heart, you already understand what he's saying. 
You don't understand the groanings. God does. You don't understand what you should say. God does. But you already know the will of God. Because the will of God is clear to all of us. We know. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to his purposes. We already know. We already know that this is his plan. That he will eventually glorify you. And in the process, he will continue to make even the things that are struggle, you're struggling with in this moment turn out for the blessing of your life and the kingdom and our world. We haven't been fully in church together in a whole quarter. We had communion the last time we were together. How, how blessed that was. How amazing that God said, hey, you don't normally do communion this soon, but because you're going to be gone for the next 14 weeks, we're going to have communion together. And so we had communion because the Holy Spirit put it on Sandra's heart for us to do it then. And so we moved with it because God was calling us to be together in a way that was touched by him in a very specific way. We took into ourselves the body and blood of Christ. We took into ourselves the reality of those gifts. We took into ourselves those symbols that are bigger than we can imagine because the Holy Spirit led the church. Because the Holy Spirit prepared us to be a part by reminding us that we are all one body. By the intake of Christ, we are one in Him. And so it was that Paul says, you may not understand what's happening, but God knows. You may not understand what's going on, but God does. And He's working all things together. All things. Not just good things, but all things. Remember, all things together for good. Then starts this passage that also gets ripped out, becomes the, it becomes the theological basis for an entire religion. For whom? He foreknew. He also predestined. For whom? He foreknew. He also predestined. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. You turned for home. Boom. When you turned for home, he met you out on the road. He wrapped you in the robe of righteousness that covered your filth and your stench, right? And because he is outside of time, because he doesn't, he, he's not encumbered by the realities of your progress, he already foredestined the outcome here when you made the turn here. He already said, you will be this in the end because I don't, I'm not encumbered by time. If you choose to get home, it's as if you're home already. If you choose to be righteous, it's as if you're righteous already. If you choose glorification, it's as if you're glorified already. He foreknew. He already knew you were going to make the decision. You still made the decision. Go to, go to Ephesians chapter 1 if you want to read it. He, Ephesians chapter 1 keeps coming back to this predestined by choice, predestined by choice, predestined by choice. I chose and God predestined. I chose and God predestined. I chose to make the turn. And God predestined the outcome. God knows the end game at the start of the game. God knows the plan when we make the turn. Outside of time, God sees the end and the beginning. He knows what he wants to do in your life. And he knows what you will do and be. He who foreknew predestined. He set the destination ahead of time. Got that? 
You ever, you've entered, you've done this. You've done this. You get a little predestination right now. You, you, you do it all the time. Those of you who use GPS, those of you who are not using GPS in your phone, it's time to get rid of the flip phone. Okay? There's a better phone out there. I know. I love my flip phone. I love that I could slide into my pocket. I could actually pull it up and write messages without looking because it was easy. A, B, C, D. They're in the same place they've always been. They're in the same place they've been on the phone when I was a kid in 1960. Those ABCs were all in the same spot. It's time to get a new phone. Learn this predestination thing. You know when you do it? It's when you don't know where you're going, right? You, you write in the address of a place you don't know so that you might be led to that place through this GPS system that knows more than you do. So you're walking along the road to hell. You make the turn and you head for home. When you start heading for home, you know what happens. Holy Spirit slips into that moment and he begins to speak to you and guide you. And when you wander off to the wrong path, he guides you back. When you take a step in the right direction and a step, this is the blessing of the Holy Spirit that your GPS unit does not have. When the Holy Spirit keeps you on the right path, when you're moving that path, the Holy Spirit gives you encouragement. Your GPS system never says, good job, you're on the right track. Someone invent that, you will be a very wealthy person at the end of the day because everybody wants their GPS system to regularly encourage them. Hey, you're doing well. Stay on this path. You're doing good. I love it when they come on and say, you are on the shortest path. Can you say a little more? Like, good job. Good choice. He foreknew the persons who make the choice and won't. You know why? Because he stands outside of time and sees the whole game at once. He's not picking winners and losers. He just knows who the winners and losers are going to be because he knows who's going to pick him. That's all. But look at what he foresaw in you. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, Christ, might be the firstborn in the resurrection among many brethren. He said, that when you made the turn and started to head for home, the plan, the end game was for you to be like Jesus. Now, hopefully you're getting that process as you're going along because you're a much better testimony in the process if you look more like Jesus than you. But at the end of the day, at glorification, you will be a replica of Jesus. So then in your resurrection, you join Jesus, who is the first fruit among many brothers. But he's not done. Moreover, whom he predestined, these also he called. These also he called. You know what that means, right? That means the moment you make the turn, okay? I keep, I'm wearing this carpet out over here. The moment you make the turn, you are called. I don't know what you're called to do or be. I do know some things about the call. 
I know that when you have a call on your life, you are going in a direction not led by you, but led by God. Here's the crazy thing about that call. It is specific to the design of who you are. It is a purpose-driven life. It is a purpose-driven call. It is purposes of God that are being followed. We just saw that in the text. You are now called to the purposes of God. And in following the purposes of God, He is taking who you are, the skills, the talents, the information, the knowledge, and He's wrapping that package up and saying, you know the best place to to use Him right there. You know the best place to use her right there. And he has called you to follow him and to be a blessing to those around you on the path. See, here's the deal. Once you make the turn and start heading in his direction, your influence, your your ministry, your calling is designed to encourage the people who are in the church or to get more people into that into that line, into that walk. You are either called to be an encourager and a, but a person who brings growth to the people in the congregation or you are call, called to bring new people into the congregation. Everybody's an evangelist. Some people have gifts like that. Everybody's an encourager. Some people have gifts like that. Everybody can sing. Some people have gifts like that. Everybody can lead. Some people have gifts like that. You see, the deal is we are all seen by God as a part of a whole. Paul calls it the body of Christ. When we make the turn, we join something much bigger than ourselves. Thousands of years old, touched by people we only imagine being like. We join Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David himself and Solomon himself. We join anyone who has ever been on the path to the kingdom on the same path. And we throw our lot in with theirs to see if we can do something to make this crummy world into a better place and see how many of God's children we can get headed for home. You have a call on your life. What will you do with the next decade? You have a call on your life. Ten years from now, will anybody know? And you might think ten years is too far. But if you don't know where you're going to be in 10 years, there's no way to know where you're going to be next year. When you set the GPS, it sets the coordinates by where you want to be. What will you do with the next decade? I know some of you are going, I'm going to be dead in the next decade. Sure, any of us could be dead in the next decade. But maybe you won't. And if you're not, you will be glad you had a plan. Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? What's the destination for your life 10 years from now? What is your 10-year plan? Because there is a call on your life. The apostle says, everyone who follows Jesus has a call on their life. custom fit to you. It is probably something you're already passionate about that God wants to take and use in the kingdom today. But you have a call on your life. In the next 10 years, He may have you going through something you don't want to do to learn about something you want to be. But where are you headed? What's your plan? Don't wait for the currents of the planet to carry you because the currents 
of the planet are going in the wrong direction. The call of God is always an upstream swim. He says you are called. He says you are justified. Those he foreknew, he predestined to be like Jesus. He called them and he justified them. You got to love justified. Just justified is, I am way away from God, but when he finds me, actually when I turn and head for home, he wraps me up and makes it look like I've never done anything wrong. I've been justified. My accounts are settled. I owe nothing to anyone. And in fact, I have an all-encompassing credit line with God going forward. The only way out of that credit line is to bail on your own. So long as you're trying to move this direction, the account's settled and the credit is yours. Called. Justified. And then the, the apostle hits you with the last one. Who will save me from this body of death? Jesus Christ, all this stuff's going to happen between there and there. But you know what the big deal is? At the end of the road, I am glorified. I no longer am divided in my character. I now choose to do what God wants me to do by my nature, by the call of who I am in my life, because I'm no longer a servant of sin, a servant of the flesh, a servant of the carnal carnality that's in me. I am now transferred from mortal to immortal, from corruptible to incorruptible, when I am glorified on that last moment of earth's history, the problem of sin is gone. And Paul says, when he chose you and met you on the road, when you turned and headed for home and he wrapped his robe around you, he already saw you as glorified. Called. Justified. Glorified. Why? God lives outside of the stream of town. And he sees the whole thing at once. And though it hasn't happened, it's already true. It's not yet real, but it's already true. Because truth isn't dependent on you. Truth isn't dependent on me. It's dependent on the one who knows. And the end game is his game. And so that's how Paul can end this can end this passage with such power. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can, who dares to be, who would even try to be against us? Follow the who's in this story. Follow the who's in this passage. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God. Who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword? Nobody. Nothing. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who will save me from this body of death? Jesus. How will he do it? He's going to fill you with the Spirit and count you as righteous. Because in God's will, in God's indomitable, unchangeable will, you are already glorified. Because he sees you as you will be, no matter where you step. Father, your word is beyond our understanding and so far bigger than we. Then we can recognize in any one moment. Please help us to see beyond the moment. To see the glory that you see. To accept that no matter how messed up and broken today might be in our life, you see 